Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'm going to cover verse, verses 34 through 40. This passage will take up that issue that has caused so much confusion and strife. Women should be silent in the churches. Our context is in chapter 14. Paul has spent the first 33 verses talking about prophecy and regulating the use of prophecy. In the church, he says, I want you all to prophesy, but at the most two or three, and so forth and so on. And my contention will be, as we go through these last seven verses in 1 Corinthians 14, that Paul will continue to be talking about prophecy. And in fact, that is what he is talking about when he says the women should be silent in the churches. I'll give you that view in a minute. But first of all, let's talk about the phrase, as in all the churches. That's not in my translation, the Holman Christian Study Bible. It just says the women should be silent in the churches. The NASB translates as in all the churches of the saints and puts that phrase at the end of verse 33. So it reads like this, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints, period, full stop. Then verse 34, the women should be silent in the churches. The Holman Christian Study Bible, on the other hand, or the ESV, on the other hand, says that as in all the churches of the saints, verse 34, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches. So as in all the churches is it's ambiguous as to where it should go if it's, if it's at the end of verse 33 then paul is saying god is not a god of confusion but of peace as in all the churches of the saints if he but if you put it at the, at the beginning of verse 34 it's the women should be silent in the churches as in all the churches of the saints it doesn't matter because i believe that paul was saying that whether it's talking about peace and no contention or whether he's talking about women should be silent it's in all the churches he had a, a, a pattern a rule of worship if you will he expected it to be followed he said in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In verse 2, he talked about how it's good to follow the traditions and so forth. So he's talking about a, a rule that's for all of us today. So we're not going to get out of this verse by saying, well, that's for back then. That's not for today. It's in all the churches. Now, what does he mean by silence in the churches on the part of women? Well, there are voluminous opinions existing to try to explain this verse. I'm not going to go through all of them. I'm only going to present two of the ones that I think are more cogent than the others. Both of the views that I'm going to present uphold the overarching principle that Paul has here is that women should be submissive as the law also says. Now, how they're to be submissive is what I'm going to argue about. I'm going to talk about these two views. I'm going to take one of those views for my own, but even even if I'm wrong on that, the views I'm going to present uphold the overarching principle that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 11 that God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of the wife, and so forth. So, before I give you my the two views I'm going to present, I want to mention some of the more radical views that completely dismiss Paul's arguments. For example, some people say this passage is a gloss. It's not in the original manuscript. Paul would never say something as absurd as this. Some misogynist monk somewhere must have inserted this phrase into the original manuscript and screwed it up. Well, the problem with that is all the, of our extant manuscripts have the phrase. It's not a, a manuscript problem. That's not going to fly. Some people actually put quotation marks around the passage and say this is what Paul's enemies were saying. And Paul thinks it's absurd and he proceeds to refute it. So in other words, 1 Corinthians 14.34 would be in, para, in, in air quotes. So as my enemies are saying, quotation mark, the women should be silent in the churches for they're not permitted to speak, but should be submissive on the, as the law also says, unquote, and then he would proceed to refute it. But the problem is, where does he refute it? I don't see any refutation of what he says. So, 
I guess you could go to verse 36, drop down a couple of verses. When Paul says, did the word of God originate from you? You could say he starts speaking there and put, puts his end quotes at the end of verse 35, which says, and if they want to learn something, they should be asked their own husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church meeting. Close quote. Paul takes those two verses, puts them in quotes, and then refutes them in verse 36. That, my friends, is a huge stretch. So I'm not going to get into that. It, that probably deserves a little bit of refutation, but I'm not, I can't spend forever on this. So let's go back to the two views I'm going to present. The one view is that Paul meant when he said absolutely. I'll call this the absolute silence view. The woman should not talk about anything publicly in the church. Now, we need to limit that argument a little bit. This argument does not state that women never say anything in the church. Private remarks are okay, such as... Uh, Johnny, little Johnny, please quit pouring your communion juice on the rug. You're ruining things. Things like that. How about turn the air conditioner down? Private remarks, okay. Praying to herself's okay. That, that it's, this view shouldn't be overstated, but it means saying things out publicly like a tongue and interpretation, that kind of thing, or prophecy. Now, I disagree with this view, but I do not disagree with the view because I'm a feminist. I don't disagree with the view because there are evangelical squishes out there who think that this passage is difficult to stomach in our hyper-egalitarian, gender-denying, feminist, sodomite, marriage-loving world. Gender-bending, transvestite, transsexual-loving world. No, I don't care what the gender Nazis say out there, the people who are denying that God created men, male and female. I don't care what they say. I just care about what the passage actually means. So I'm going to disagree with the women's women's should be absolutely silent in the church, but not because I'm a feminist. Now let's look at some arguments in favor of this absolute silence view. First of all, the verse sounds absolute. It just does. You read it, it says, I, don't, I want the women to be silent in the churches. The women should be silent in the churches. There it is. Okay, well, here's an, a response to that. Here are some other passages where Paul exhorts silence uses that word silent, but those passages do not are not interpreted absolutely. For example, in 1 Corinthians 14, 30, but if, if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. Here we have one prophet speaking out loud in the church. Another prophet has a prophecy. The first prophet is silent. Does that mean he's absolutely silent? That he's never to say another word in the church? What happens if the second prophet is finished? Can the first prophet not take it up again and speak out loud? And after all, he was speaking. He wasn't silent before the second prophet started having a revelation. The first prophet was out speaking out loud in the church. So that word is obviously not that word silent is not interpreted there in an absolute sense. Why should we drop down to verse 34 and interpret it in an absolute sense? Doesn't the context tell us the scope of the silence? How about 1 Corinthians 14, 28? But if there is no interpreter, that person should keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Well, the Paul there implies very strongly if there is an interpreter, that person should not keep silent but should speak. So that person is not absolutely silent all the time in the church. He's only silent when there is no interpreter of his tongue. So those two examples there show that even though something sounds silent, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's absolute silence. It just means silent under the given occasion. Now, the absolute silence view could then go back to verse 34 and say, well, where's the context here? It doesn't say the women should be silent in the churches when there's no interpretation or when another prophet gets up to speak. There's nothing to limit the silence there. It's absolute. I'm going to submit to you then in just a little bit, there is a lot of context there that says that women should be silent in the matter of judging other men's prophecies. That's the context that limits the scope of the silence, keeping the scope, keeping the silence from being absolute. 
Okay, well, that's the first argument, is that it sounds absolute. But here's a better argument for the absolute silence view. All of 1 Corinthians 14 is addressed to brothers. Now, that would imply that the sisters weren't going to be using spiritual gifts. Now, right off the bat, let me point out that the argument can't be that brothers refers to men only and not women because it is very clear in the lexicons that the Greek word for brothers includes sisters. It's siblings, really, but, of course, we don't talk that way in English. Paul wouldn't say siblings if I came to you speaking in tongues. So he says brothers, but he means brothers and sisters. I have no problem with that translation, and, in fact, nobody does. That's non-controversial. But let me give you some examples of where Paul does that. 1 Corinthians 14, 6, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, 1 Corinthians 14, 26, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, etc. Okay? Okay, well, if those brothers there do not mean, do not necessarily mean men only, there is another argument that says that in this particular chapter, it does mean men only because when you go down to actually here in first in the, in our verse first corinthians 34 it says the women should be silent in the churches so if you read the whole thing in context this is what you have you have brothers 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 oops now the women so paul switches from the brothers to the women as the argument goes so it would read paul would be reading like this first corinthians 14 6 now brothers if i come to you speaking in tongues first corinthians 14 20 brothers do not be children in your thinking first corinthians 14 26 what then brothers 1 Corinthians 14.34. Now, the women need to be silent. So he switches from brothers to women. So, therefore, obviously, he was, according to this argument, he was speaking to only the brothers at first, and then he switched to the women. And I, I was, I didn't believe this was true because of, I believe that the case is overall pretty weak, but I thought that was a pretty good argument, hard to deal with. But now let me consider, let me let you consider another scenario, which is analogous to this one, and see how we can have a, have a, a speaker addressed a an audience of both men and women and then and then switch to addressing just one gender and it make perfect sense for here's the example here's my example a teacher says to a class consisting of half men and half women quote students i want you to prepare a powerpoint presentation students i want you to present for 20 minutes students i want you to include research from the internet now in every one of those cases i'm addressing students as boys and girls Students is a neuter term, just like brothers is a neuter term. It includes male and female. Now, the teacher now has special instructions for the women in the class, he continues. Now, for the men in the class, I want them to wear suits. As for the women in the class, I want them to wear dress skirts. I, th- because of a special need, I segregated out the men from that group that, in- that contained men and women, and I separated out the women. I went from gender-neutral term students to gender-specific term, men and women, without a bit of trouble. This makes perfectly natural, perfect natural sense in the English. Now, the analogy with brothers is example, is, is exact. The students that were addressed included both genders. The brothers that Paul addressed included both genders, speaking in church, prophesying, and so forth. And then when spe- a special gender-specific instruction was needed, Paul naturally switches, or, or the natural switch is made, and switches easily to the third person. We say students, blah, 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 blah. And then the men need to wear suits and the women need to wear dresses. And the switch is perfectly natural and not, not a problem. So that argument's not going to fly. Now let's go to another position which I hold, which is that women's silence in the church means that Paul refers to silence in judging prophecies. 
And the argument in favor of that is the context. Remember, in, in every verse in the Bible has to be interpreted in its context. Every Bible expositor knows that. Uh, this is extremely important. In this situation, you use context. Now, let me give you the verses before our controverted verse in verse 34 that the women should be silent. Let me give you the verses before verse 34. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 29 and 30. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate. That means judge. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. So 29 and 30 verses, those verses deal with prophecies. Now, when he speaks like that, the word prophets could very easily include prophetesses, which we know that they're prophetesses. And so he's saying, okay, well, now I've just said that prophets should evaluate, and that would include prophetesses should evaluate. But, ooh, wait a minute. I don't want prophetesses to evaluate because then you would have the unfortunate situation of a male prophet being judged, perhaps wrongly, his prophecy could be judged wrongly, by a woman, and ooh, that's going to create problems. For example, if you got a married man, he prophesies, and then a real gorgeous, good-looking woman stands up, she's single, and she says, I believe, brother, I believe your prophecy's wrong, and then the, the prophet's wife, not too happy with this young woman anyway, a little bit jealous of her maybe, and then all of a sudden, now, that woman's telling me that my man's wrong. I gave you an extreme example, but you can see what could happen. And so Paul is trying to say, whoa, 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 whoa hold on. We don't want ju men, women judging prophecies. There's your context right there. And to continue, the verses right after verse 34, our controverted passage, passage where Paul says that women should be silent in the church, the verses right after that deal with judging of prophecy or deal with prophecy in particular. 1 Corinthians 14.37 says this, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. Verse 39, Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy. So there's two verses before our controverted verse. There's two verses after. Paul is talking about prophecy. But I'm not finished with the context argument yet. Let's broaden our scope and look at the whole chapter, verse 14. What's the whole chapter about? It's about prophecy. Now, why, if the whole chapter is about prophecy, why would Paul all of a sudden throw out a prohibition on women speaking, unless it had something to do with prophecy? Here's some examples in addition to the four I cited above, four verses in 1 Corinthians that deal with prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14.1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Verses, verse 3b, second part of the verse, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding. The one who prophesies Verse 4b, the one who prophesies builds up the churches. Verse 5a, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. First Corinthians 14:22b, prophecy is a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. And then in First Corinthians 14:24a, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters. He is convicted by all. Paul is talking about nothing but prophecy. He's not talking about women being silent in the church. He's talking about prophecy. He just threw that in because he wanted to not be misunderstood when he said prophets are to judge other prophets. He didn't want prophetesses judging other prophets. That's the only reason he put that verse in there, in my humble opinion. A woman judging a man's prophecy shows disrespect for God's created order much more than a woman praying or prophesying in the church. Why is a woman praised or prophesying in the church? Why would that show any disrespect to God's order? Why would it show a woman being unsubmissive? A woman praying shows lack of submission? Now, if a woman is speaking authoritatively and saying, this is the way it ought to be, brother, as in 
First Timothy 2.12, when Paul says, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, he's talking about teaching there or eldering perhaps or both. Well, that's obvious. That shows disrespect for God's created order. But not why is a woman prophesying or praying in church? How does that show disrespect for God's created order? It doesn't. Why would he all of a sudden bring up, I want the women to be absolutely silent in a discussion that has everything in the world to do with prophecy? Okay, so that would be my second argument in favor of my position that the silence refers to judging a woman's prophecy. The second argument being that judging the prophecy shows disrespect, shows women's unsubmissiveness much more than a woman praying or prophesying in church in general, speaking in general. We're given not only that, but uh, given an exhortation or something. You know, that, this, that doesn't show disrespect. So that's my second argument. The third argument in favor of the judging prophecy view is that Paul assumed that women prayed or prophesied, which is not absolute silence. For example, we look at 1 Corinthians 11:5. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. Now, I've already talked about that contentious passage in another audio. You can listen to that if you want. I won't get into that. But my point is, is that women were praying or prophesying in the church. And, and uh, Paul assumes that if she has her head covered, well, she's praying or prophesying, and that's not absolute silence. Now, of course, this is such an obvious objection to that view. The people who hold to the absolute silence view are going to have to come back on that, and they do. And the response is, is that this praying and prophesying, prophesying done by women is not in the church. So therefore, it's okay for women to pray and prophesy in casual meetings or, on, or in one-on-one -on -one situations. These advocates of the absolute silence view said, say that nothing is said in 1 Corinthians 11 about where the praying and prophesying is done. We have to deduce that from the context. We look at the context before 1 Corinthians 11, 5, and we see it's not in a church meeting. 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 is about eating of idle meat in private homes, which is not the church. My response to that is, okay, so women were praying and prophesying during social occasions? They were going out to their private friends' pagan houses and giving a prophecy at, at mealtime? Or even to their Christian brothers and sisters? I guess that's a little bit more likely. But, it's, but overall, it sounds unlikely to me. And... If she goes to a private meeting, and Paul is referring to prophesying in a private meeting, Paul would be saying, if you go to a private meeting, or if you're dealing with someone one-on-one, -on -one, you need to have your head covered. Why would Paul say somebody they had to have their head covered in a private meeting where it doesn't make any difference? In public, it would make a difference because, you, because everybody sees it, and it would mean something. But privately, what's the, in other words, what's the difference between private and church? If it shows lack of submission to pray or prophesy, with your head uncovered in church, why would it not show lack of submission if you prayed or prophesied in private? What difference does it make? Let me summarize that argument a little bit. According to the woman's silence view, Paul would be saying this. It is wrong for a woman to pray, to speak, to pray or prophesy, in particular in a church meeting. But it's okay for a woman to pray or prophesy in a private meeting or one-on-one, -on -one, as long as she has her head covered. So in one case it's okay, in one case it's not. And my question is this, well, if it's wrong for a woman to pray in public, and that doesn't show submission, why would it show, why would it not show lack of submission if she's praying or prophesying in a private meeting with men present, or one-on-one -on -one with a man? I don't see what the difference is. Now, B.B. Warfield says that in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says that women should pray or prophesy with their head covered, B.B. Warfield says nobody can tell where 1 Corinthians 11:5 occurs. He kind of throws his hands up. Well, if that's true, since we can't know where it was done, that means the context before doesn't apply. And so I say, well, then if you can't know from what happens before in 1 Corinthians 11:5, why not assume that the context after 1 Corinthians 11:5 governs? Because that context is clear. 
we go down 12 verses, 1 Corinthians 11:17. Now in giving the following instructions, I do not praise you since you come together. You assemble in the assemble, assembly, in the ecclesia, in the church, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worst. And then you go on through 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14. Paul is talking about church, 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 in the church, in the church, in the church, when you assemble. I, in my humble opinion, that the, the what happens in 1 Corinthians 11, 5, Paul is pivoted from talking about idol meat eaten in private or in a pagan festival or in private, and he pivots there in 1 Corinthians 11, 5, he st now starts talking about in the church because look at all the following context. So I think that the women's absolute silence view is a real, real stretch. Now, there's some practical advantages. This has nothing to do with the scripture. I have a friend who believes in the absolute silence view, and he says, but this forces men to be to speak and the women to sh not talk so much, which is absolutely true. And he, he's given many examples. People, I've, se I've seen it, and that's great, but that's just a utilitarian argument. It seems to me that it might be better to, to interpret the Scripture rightly and then also instruct the men to lead and don't be pussy wusses. Lead and don't let your wife, wives dominate the meeting. Women tend to talk a lot. Men tend to sit there and be passive mutes. That's a problem. I, I know that. It's a big problem. But I don't think you beat a problem by interpreting the Scripture wrongly. Now let's go to the second part of verse 34 where Paul says, Women should be submissive, as the law also says. Well, now, the interesting thing is, is that it's hard to know where the law says that. Now, for, look, before we start out trying to figure that out, we need to point out that it, the law does not say that women should be silent. It's the law that says that women should be submissive. So Paul is saying the law shows that women should be submissive, submissive and therefore I, Paul, say that because of that, women should not be silent in the church. It's an, it's an indirect argument. From the submissiveness of the law to the women's silence in the, silence in the church. Paul is not trying to say that the law says that women should be silent anywhere. So that's not an issue here. Now, that's, this, of course, is much debated. But I'm going to give you two options here. I think the easiest way is to take it to refer to the whole Old Testament. And so that's the position I'm going to take. This, when you hear the word law, that often refers to the whole law, prophets, and writings. This happens a lot. Sometimes the... The New Testament writer will say, as the prophets say, but what he means is, as the law, the prophets, and the writings say, the whole Old Testament uh, says. So that's, that's reasonable. It's not just talking about the Torah. It's talking about the whole Old Testament canon, the whole Hebrew scriptures. Now, if that's true, as the whole Old Testament scripture says, women should be submissive, well, there's plenty of evidence of women being submissive to men in the Old Testament. Now, here's some examples of creation. Adam is blamed for the fall of man, not Eve. So Adam was the leader. He was the one that took responsibility, as we know from Romans 5. Example number two, women are to be submissive to their husbands. Remember, Sarah and Abraham, Peter quotes that. as a, Sarah called him, Lord was submissive to him. Third example, men were the leaders in both Hebrew society and religion. Only men could be priests. The vast majority of the prophets were male. All the writing prophets were men. In only a few historical examples did women prophesy to men, and when they did, they did it in a more private setting. Most of the political leaders were men. The families were patriarchal. Vows made by a wife could be revoked by her husband. In the Old Testament, the woman was either under the authority of her husband, husband or the authority of her father. Vows made by a wife could be revoked by her husband. I think I just said that. Deborah rebuked Barak for wanting a woman to help him lead against the pagan Canaanites there in that story in Judges. So we have lots and lots and lots of examples of how in the law that women were submissive to men in the Old Testament. And of course, all those examples were great on the ears of evangelical leftists who have sucked up to the culture and imbibed it so much that sometimes you can't tell the difference between them and the culture. 
Here's another option as to what it means that women should be submissive just as the law says. You can refer the law directly to the Torah, Genesis 3.16, where Moses says this, talking about God. He, God, said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children in anguish. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. I don't like this option. This is from Adam Clark, suggested by Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown. I don't like this option because it makes it sound like women's submission is a result of sin. It makes it sound like submission is part of the curse, which means now that we're, the curse has been reversed by Jesus that women don't need to be submissive anymore, which is a typical feminist leftist argu type argument. And it doesn't work here. It's not a good analogy for Paul. Women should be silent because they are cursed? No, I don't think so. It's just talking about general. That's the way God made it for the man to be the leader in the home and the woman to be the helper and the supporter, likewise in the churches and so forth. All right, let's move on. Verse 35, and if they, Paul says, if they want to learn something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church meeting. Now, here's a problem here. It sounds like the woman speaking only had to do with asking questions about teaching, but the context is prophecy. Now, on either view, the absolute silence view or the silence and judging prophecies view, there's a problem here. On the silence and judging prophecies view, what does judging a man's prophecy have to do with learning something. In other words, Paul says, I'm not going to let you judge men's prophecies, but if you want to learn something, you do it at home. What's the connection? How about if it's absolute silence? Paul says, I don't want you to have a wisdom, a word of wisdom, word of revelation, prophecy, tongues, interpretation. I don't want you to do any of that, but if you want to learn something, do it at home. What's the connection? Well, it's not immediately obvious to me. Perhaps Paul was moving from exercising spiritual gifts, or you absolutely should be silent about that, or maybe you should be silent about judging prophecy. Either way, however you interpret that. And then he moves from that to women asking questions when an issue comes up. And so that would make the verse somewhat parenthetical. He's talking about women's silence. However you take it, silence and judging prophecies or absolute silence. He says, okay, well, now if women are going to be silent, that means if an issue comes up, they can't, they can't, if an issue in the prophecy comes up, that there's something wrong with that prophecy. She should ask her husband about it. What's wrong with the prophecy? The issues come up. People are arguing about that prophecy. Well, if you want, you know, don't argue about it, women. Argue about it at home. Or if it's absolute silence. A prophecy comes up and a woman doesn't like, doesn't like it or doesn't understand it, she should talk about it with her husband at home. But at any rate, this shows order in the church. If you've got women wrangling over stuff in the I had it happen one time. I remember it. it years ago, my house church meeting. There was a particular sister in there who was very skilled in the word. I say very skilled. I mean, she was, let's put it this way, she was more skilled than the average person in the church. And she started wrangling about an interpretation of a scripture, and I could just feel the uneasiness everywhere. And she was speaking absolute truth about what she was saying. That was not a problem with the content of her words, but it was a problem in the way it was handled and the way it was affecting the assembly. So I think, however you interpret this, we need to keep sight of that. We won't proper relationship between the genders to be carried out in church, and we don't be, need, need to be listening to Gloria Steinem or Elizabeth Warren telling us how we ought to handle things. 1 Corinthians 14.36, did the word of God originate from you, originate from you, or did it come from you only? Now, of course, this is sarcasm here, as the NIV Study Bible points out, and I point it out to you because I tend to be a little ironic when I talk, when I see something stupid or ridiculous. That's the best way to handle that. What's that? What the Alinsky rule, the radical Alinsky, one of his rules is ridicule something. There's no answer for it. Paul used sarcasm all the time. So did Jesus. But at any rate, when Paul says, did the word of God originate from you? He's trying to say, look, 
the way the Corinthians were doing the church is not the way that he wanted them to do, and not according to apostolic desires were they doing church. Because, as I mentioned at the end of verse 33 or at the beginning of verse 34, Paul uses that phrase, as in all the churches of the saints. This shows that there was a general apostolic pattern for churches. Contrast that with the attitude that churches have today. We can do church however the heck we want to. We're not going to look to the Bible for inspiration on what we need to do. There's no positive commands about how to do church in the Scripture. It doesn't say you ought to do church this way, you ought to do church that way, so we can do whatever we want. But look at here, Paul says, as in all the churches, is your church on Main Street in small town USA? Is your church, can, is it a part of all the churches? I'm not obviously talking about all the churches that Paul was dealing with because it didn't exist yet. But don't you think that's a reasonable application to think that Paul is talking about all the churches, including yours? And notice this, what was in all the churches is according to, quote unquote, the Lord's command, as we'll see in verse 37 as we go there. Verse 37, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. So that means what Paul says is what Jesus says, and you don't need to separate the two out. I remember I was in China, Catholic woman sitting to my right, said, well, that was just Paul's opinion. She didn't, she didn't agree with Paul's opinion. And I immediately said, wait a minute, what the Lord's command is as what the apostles command is and what the apostles command is is what the lord's command is and you have no right to denigrate the apostolic authority by saying paul is just giving his opinion paul in verse 37 is not just giving his opinion he says you need to recognize that what i write to you is the lord's command gives it a little bit more authority now paul here is probably thinking of prophets who were speaking too many times in the meeting or who perhaps were stepping on each other when they spoke this shows that the chapter is not only against the misuse of tongues, it is also against the misuse of prophecy. And people usually note the misuse of tongues and say, see here, Paul is talking about tongues, tongues is chaos, tongues is strife, therefore tongues are bad, tongues are evil. But Paul's talking about prophecy here. He's talking about the misuse of prophecy, but Paul also explicitly encouraged prophecy. He said, desire, I desire that you prophesy. So we need to remember that all of these strictures that Paul comes up with against the misuse of spiritual gifts are not a prohibition on those spiritual gifts. They are not, Paul's restrictions are not denigrating the use of spiritual gifts, not in, in the least. He, in one place he says, despise not prophesying. Another, he says, forbid not to speak in tongues. And it would be natural to think that after he regulates it so much, pretty soon people will say, oh, shoot, the heck with it. We're not going to prophesy. We're not going to speak in tongues anymore. And Paul's very careful. No, don't, don't take my complaints that way. Now, Paul's saying that his regulations were the Lord's command. Jameson Fawcett Brown says this is, quote, a direct assertion of inspiration. It is. It's a very good argument to use against liberals who want to trash the scriptures. We go to verses, verse 38 in 1 Corinthians 14. But if anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. Now, there's two ways to look at that. The first is that the person who ignores Paul will be ignored by all the churches. They will no pay pay no attention to the disobedient one. This is the option from the NIV study Bible. John Gills takes the same view. He says this means, quote, this means that this person who is ignored will, quote, not be known and owned, but shunned and rejected. There's another option is that if anyone ignores this, he will be ignorant, not ignored, but ignorant. In other words, he's a fool for not listening to Paul. Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggests that this view is correct. It says, so the disobedient man should be left alone in his ignorance. He will be ignorant, so leave him alone. I tend to like the first option. Don't pay any attention to somebody who, dis who pays no attention to Paul, just like I don't pay any attention to what liberals say. 
because they ignore what Paul says. They they say he's wrong. They they say he's got errors and all that kind of stuff. Don't pay any attention to that person. Ignore him. He will be ignored by believers in the church. We go to 1 Corinthians 14, 39 through 40, and we'll finish this audio up. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy. Again, he's not forbidding prophecy. Abusus non tolit usum, the medieval Latin phrase that says the abuse does not bar the use. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy. Eager. Now, what part of eager do we not understand? He's not trying to stomp out prophecy. He's just trying to regulate it. Be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking another language again. He's not trying to, to prohibit speaking in tongues. He's trying to regulate the use of speaking in tongues. But everything must be done decently in order. So this is, that's the catch. That's the summary of this chapter here, talking about church worship. And remember, when he says, I do not forbid speaking in other languages and so forth, and when he's talking about his regulations of prophecy, he's talking about in the church. Go back through 1 Corinthians 14 and see how many times Paul says, in the church, which means that privately speaking in tongues is perfectly okay. If there's no interpretation, let him speak to himself and to God. That means privately while you're in the church, but privately and Likewise, I speak in tongues more than you all. When? Paul does that in a church meeting? Probably not. He does that at home when he speaks in tongues more than you all. He's probably not going to be doing that in, in church meetings more than you all. Now, when the church service should be done decently in order, that means with gravity and composure. It does not mean, however, that it's like a Presbyterian church service where people are striving as hard as they can to keep their eyelids from slamming shut. Ladies and gentlemen, with that unfortunate remark of mine, we will we have now finished 1 Corinthians 14, 39 through 40, and we will continue our talk, our discussion of 1 Corinthians starting with chapter 15. In chapter 15, we are going to discuss the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of you. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.